Hello and welcome to Read This Fucking Book, Episode 3, The Left Hand of Darkness. I'm Rachel. I'm Elena. So today's book was recommended by me. Uh, it's The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, the Left Hand of Darkness was originally published in 1969. Uh, it won the Hugo and Nebula Awards as the year's best novel a year later. And today it remains one of the most important science fiction novels of all time, influential for its themes, its prose, and its status as one of Le Guin's masterworks. And I can tell you I was at a Geek Girl brunch party last night for the holidays, and we were talking about books, and I had it in my bag, so I kept pulling it out and like kept gushing over it and telling people, oh, you know, this is one of the top five science fiction novels ever ever written like arguably one of the best uh and i think it tops a lot of people's lists so what do you since i assigned this to you tell me what was this book about all right well basically the book is about essentially first contact with another um with the human world that has not had any contact with the larger intergalactic community of human worlds. And Genli I is the, what they call him, the envoy who got sent down to the planet um, alone. So he would be non-threatening and could actually form personal relationships with the people. And basically his job is to try and convince them to open themselves up to trade and like the trade of ideas with the rest of humanity scattered across the star system and he fails in the first country that he tries so he goes to the neighbors next door and fails there and goes back to the first country to see if the situation has changed and has essentially one actual ally the entire time everyone else is just trying to use him and thematically it's um it's kind of a book about what it means to be human and what is love and friendship and trust. Uh, I don't know anything yeah. that you would add to that. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a, a very nice, a nice summary. Uh, so one of the reasons that I recommended this, you know, as one of my favorite novels was in a, res- as a response to the winter rose, which is a book that the book that we read before this. Uh, and if you listen to the episodes in order, the episode before this, um, which I felt was, you know, a very romantic story. It had a lot of wintry settings and language. Um, and for me personally, it was very, it was a, a, a confusion of indecipherable emotions, hidden meanings and hidden perceptions. And as a response to that, I wanted to recommend something that I felt was similar. So I assigned this book, which is, yeah, a, an examination not only of of first contact and what it means to be human, which I think is an essential, or at least for me, an essential aspect of science fiction. Um, but also uh, the idea of what it means to be someone else, what it means to even understand someone who is not you. And, you know, of course it's science fiction, so it's an extreme. So this, this, uh, this envoy, Genli, he's, he has to figure out how to live alone on this planet. And I think that it's, a beautiful and very naive way of of organizing a first contact to say, okay, well, we put you on this planet alone and that way you're not threatening and that way you have to change because you're the only one. So they're not going to change for you and therefore you will somehow, 
it's like you know like language immersion where you you know right. you go to the and you just learn it and you either figure it out or you don't and they kill you <laughs> right i mean that seems to be the the thing that hangs over the, over everyone's head is if he fails what happens i don't think he gets to leave right so well that's that, that's kind of discussed at one point as like he, he kind of blows it off as oh i just call my ship go back up sleep for a generation and come back down and try again right. you know what is for me in hyperspace a week is going to be 20 years for y'all mm-hmm. but that was uh, there's intimations later in the book that he wouldn't actually be able to get back to his ship it was a little unclear how that mechanism was supposed to work um yeah the exactly. people on the ground are actually hostile to him right if he doesn't, he only had one lander. He doesn't have access to it, and then he has his ansible, which allows him to. And an ansible is something that shows up a lot in science fiction, especially in the science fiction of the '60s and '70s. But it allows him to communicate with anyone that he needs to instantly, which is, you know, it's a great way to get around relativity. Um, yes, <laughs> but he loses it, and so then, then what? That he's just he's living on his wits, and. And on the relationships you can make with the people. Um, so, I mean, and to some extent, it's kind of an empathy Im- immersion as well. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. how can you um, learn a completely foreign people well enough to not not merely understand them, but, like, go beyond that into loving them? Um, or at least, uh, I don't know, being able to so profoundly understand their differences from you that you would not try to change them. Mm-hmm. So, who are the characters? Uh, there's Genli Ai, who is the envoy. He's the lone human, and he is a man. Um, and then everyone else is a member of this this planet. And they none of them. The so the biggest conceit and the reason that you may read this book in a class um, or see it on a list really is because of this idea that Le Guin played with, in which the people of Winter do not have a gender. Uh, they are genderless, essentially neuter, except for when they are in rut or heat or whatever you want to call it, um, ponfar. <laughs> they, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, um, and then they become they have a sex, but that sex is random. And then uh, the other person who is also what they call kemmer, when they're in kemmer, they just sex to the opposite so that they can they right. can breed together. Well, it it, it was. It seems to me like less random and more um, kind of a dominance, like who is the more dominant personality kind of determines um, which way it goes. So like if you're it, it was unclear to me if you're Kemmering and don't have anyone nearby you also in Kemmer, whether you would, in fact, have a gender or not. Right. But- it She doesn't she doesn't really explore what happens if there isn't anyone else there to help you to to go with camera with you. Do you sex? Is there something that you would sex to? Right. uh, And, you know, just as a preference um, or like a a tendency, maybe not a preference, but a tendency. And then also she doesn't explore um, like same sex cameraing or 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 anyone who maybe not isn't able to. She they do. They do talk about people who are in camera too much or who. Um, are in Kemmer when they're not supposed to or who induce Kemmer chemically and they are referred to as perverts, but it's a, a capital P pervert, which to me indicates more of a language restriction and right. less of a, a, a societal um, rejection. Right. 
um, yeah, the whole, um, and, and I guess the other thing is, it's, it's also weird because they're not, they're not neuters, uh, exactly. It's more that they are both at the same time. And that, that's something that, uh, Genley talks about, um, later as he comes to understand it a little better is that everyone, it's, it's almost more of an amp. Uh, ambisexuality where everybody has what a normal human would perceive as the aspects of both male and female um, in their personality in the way they deal with emotions in the way that context dependent they will um, either take charge of a situation or not and um, so it's it's, it's weird because he still projects like these sexual sexualized and gendered ideas onto the people who, you know, for them, they're simply like living the entire spectrum of human possibility within themselves, within their their own life versus living half of it and maybe playing with the edges of one or the other that isn't kind of their natural way of being, but not, you know, but essentially confined to one. Like, that's not what these people are. They're simply the entire human spectrum yeah. in and of themselves. I think you're touching on something that's really important to me about these books is the fact that we, for the most part, there are a few journal entries and stories that are written down and inserted into the book. But for the most part, it, it comes from Genley's perspective. And he is, especially at the beginning, um, less so at the end, I think, as he gets a little bit more zen about it. But he does project his own ideas, his own very human ideas about what mm-hmm. people are like and what a person can be like uh, without their gender. He, It's kind of bristly to read, um, because, especially the beginning, because any anything that's negative, he calls feminine. Yes. Uh, so it's interesting. And I think a very done very on purpose by Le Guin. To highlight some things that we talk about even today about how there are many, you know, usually in a male-dominated culture, the things that are negative about a person are feminized. So, like, don't be a pussy, that kind of thing. Right. So, uh, yeah, I, I like that. I like that he, anybody who does anything good, any 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 aspect of their personality that he admires, he attributes to a maleness and then anytime no. anybody rubs him the wrong way he's like oh it was very feminine it was womanly well not not necessarily though because um there is anytime it's about like caretaking or maternalism then it's a positive femininity mm. mm-hmm. um, and there are several times when somebody is you know expressing like a softer side or a sort of acceptance or offering care and he, he views that as, as feminine but essentially he has like he almost has the I don't want to call it like the Madonna Horde economy because I don't think that's what it is, but he has some dichotomy in his head about what's good feminine and what's not good yeah. feminine. And um, definitely that comes up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's also a representative of the limitations of, of his own ideas about masculinity. Right. Because in, in their culture, obviously, they they value children of the body. So... People who are the child, if 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 the if the um the person has sex woman and actually carried the child and birthed it, that is their heir. Right, it's a uh, matrilineal. Um, yeah, or the preference is matrilineal uh, inheritance because that's 
even even if the other they know is their child, uh, because you only chemer with one person most of the time. And apparently, I don't know. Somewhere there's a throwaway line about how it has such a high rate of fertility because it's essentially like an animal going into heat, or you know, having that period where sex is literally about procreation. Um, it's it's not about fun and games. It's not as Maud Lebowski would call it a fun zesty enterprise um <laughs> it's uh yeah it's about it's not like, very zesty spreading your all. genes yeah. yeah well maybe, maybe it is i mean it, it's it's actually this um it's one of the interesting things that everybody uh it's just accepted in their culture that everybody's going to have a monthly camera period and that when you're in camera that's all you're doing like you get to go to your like fuck shack and camera away <laughs> with whoever you're cameraing with and like you're good like nobody's questioning it. They're not expecting to you to do discriminatory anything. Discriminatory about who they camera with. It's just like almost right. like who's near. Like, oh, you're here. You're here now. Well, I mean, they're always they're they're always going to be limited to the people who are also in camera at the same time. Um, and uh, you know, most of the time, I'm sure, like with anything else, you're going to pick the best option of the ones available to you. Um, right. You know, when you're living in a you know your hometown of like 5,000 people you don't date the same guy that you date when you go away to college and you're on a campus with like 10 times as many people as your whole hometown like that's just Mm -hmm. you know you have to pick from what's available um but I don't know that was there was not a a great deal of talk about like just the average person having any kind of romance associated with it. Like there's definitely are stories about people who kind of vow chemer to each other. Like we're only going to chemer with each other and mm-hmm. we'll even make like a lifetime vow of that. So that's the equivalent of marriage. So obviously they do have some room for like that kind of mate bond, but it doesn't seem to be uh, all that common. Yeah. So that's a good way to segue to Estraven. Who is uh, the other major character, (laughs) the other major character who it's kind of one of those like rom coms where they hate each other at first, or at least the main character hates them. And then they they find out that everything that they had assumed or perceived uh, was wrong because he because Genli's just bad at he's only been there like two years and he thinks he knows all everything there is to know about this culture. But he just hasn't really internalized it enough yet to really understand what's happening so that gets right. him into trouble and yeah. estraven is the prime minister of Carehide, which is the country that he spends the majority of his time in up until the beginning of the of the story and he thinks that the guy you know he doesn't really like him he thinks he's a little slimy uh and that he might lie a lot and that he's always trying to influence him or use him so he doesn't really appreciate estraven and what estraven has done in their life uh and i I should note here that Le Guin does use male pronouns throughout the book so it's completely okay to say he um but yeah he doesn't genli and estraven not not the best of friends at the beginning of the book and it's kind of this really great mutual understanding that occurs throughout the story Mm -hmm. because estraven thinks that genli is stupid (laughs) (laughs) well i I mean it's it's on both sides the uh, the sort of cultural barrier and the inability to really see from someone else's perspective and actually like put aside your own culture and your own training and see into your own culture as if you are from the outside so there's things that uh like estraven 
uh, and we, we do get a few chapters of his journal. So we get not merely what he says to Genli, but his actual own perspective as he is journaling it for his family archives. So presumably that takes the uh, unreliable narrator, narrator aspect out of it. Like it's not filtered through Genli. So, mm-hmm. you know, he thinks like where he thought he had been perfectly clear and just assumed this is why he thought Genli was stupid because he didn't understand what was being said, but that was Estrovan's own inability to actually get far enough outside of his own culture to recognize the biases he was still like assuming were at play when he spoke in a certain way or, or gave certain information. Yeah. And I like that even at the end of the story, though Estrovan is able to better understand Genli because of the proximity and the journey that they make together, and the sacrifices that they make together, Estrovan still is a very homogenous, like, everything he does and everything he's done in his career is really up to his own personal code of ethics. Right. And he doesn't really change that at all. And I like that. I like that Genli, as the human, and I know that they're all humans and they, we've all, they we're looking at permutations of humans, but as the, the true, you know, OG human is the one that is able to best adapt to being someone else. Right. That's a theme in science fiction that I really like because I like to think that the human destiny in this in this this expanding universe is that we are the ones that can figure out how to how to relate to others. That that might be our our power, our superpower if it, as it were. So I like I like when I get that that confirmation bias in stories. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You're not the only one who thinks that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so there's Gelli and Estrovan, and we, I think we should just kind of start with the big themes. Um, oh, okay, well, I have I have one that actually dovetails very nicely from okay. Gelli and Estrovan, which is the question, is this book a love story? Right. Is it? I, what and, do you think? Um, short answer, no. A longer answer would be um, that it's not a romantic love story. It is a story about the love of friendship and the kind of love that um, I, I forget all the different Greek words of love. And ironically, I had someone on Facebook post like all 10 of them, but it's the one that's kind of the, the love for mankind in general, um, mm-hmm. because, you know, you find you, you find out by the end of the story that why Estrovan has made all the sacrifices he made to support Genli and um, essentially, you know, thrown his his fate into the mix like in with Genli's success or fail they're going to do it together um is that he sees this as an opportunity to like help his you know planet and to help the people um of his world and so I don't know there's those were definitely very strong themes and they're definitely our themes of love um as far as the romance goes uh what what I what I thought when you um, threw that question at me um, was was this something that uh, Gareth Edwards said um, about his first movie Monsters um, was that essentially every story about a man and a woman is a love story even if it's the story of a love that doesn't happen and that's kind of what this if this is a any kind of love story like beyond friendship it's the kind of love story that doesn't happen yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with you, which is surprising, I think, for me. I didn't think I was going to agree with you about about your take on what the story was, so <laughs> I'm happy. 
we'll probably divert that you know in other ways but <laughs> i do agree <laughs> that it is a a friendship that it isn't love and i think that it's important because it's reflected by the idea that we are that that Le Guin has created a, a culture, a society, a species that is not necessarily organized in this binary way. Like, yes, sex is important and Kemmer is important and they talk about it a lot uh, and they've organized their their society to to, you know, better use Kemmer and help, you know, spread the species. But as as far as the story and the way that it works for Genli is I don't think it's a, a, a romantic love. It's definitely more of a friendship mm-hmm. and more of a, a self-understanding, like a brother, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Not that Genli doesn't have that. It's just kind of interesting because I think that Estrovan has a really weird, um, a, lot of, a lot of baggage around love. Yeah, because it, you find out throughout the story that that so Estrovan had vowed lifelong Kemmering with his brother, which is which is normal. They they don't have a, a incest taboo, and his brother um, dies, um, and they do have a son, and he because you can only vow lifelong Kemmering with one person in your whole life, then that's it. He's done. He does end up having another um, Kemmer that results in children, and that that character really does seem to love Estrovan. I I think I texted you at one point. It just makes me sad because it really does suck. If you look at the story from their perspective, I think their name is Ash. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just like, oh, fuck, this guy just like comes in and like you have a kid together and you really love him. And then he he goes off and does his political shit and then he gets his ass, you know, exiled. Right. And (laughs) And and, and Ash is completely willing to follow to say me and the children will come like we'll stay together and Estervan just says peace motherfucker out yeah and I think Estervan does that in a way to protect them right because obviously he knows he's not going into anything good but it's also just like oh it's so sad it's just and then of course he's on the ice with Genli and he does go into Kemmer at one point and it's very like don't touch me don't look at me don't like (laughs) It's really sad. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that that was kind of a, I guess, a, a conscious choice that the two of them made to not change what their relationship was. Um, so weirdly, the adage that, you know, sex changes everything still applies even when you're in a culture that yeah. doesn't actually, like, seem that affected by sex, at least not the way that our culture is, where you could make an argument that literally everything anyone ever does has some relation to sex their sexuality Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's interesting that it's not instead of sex uh because you know they talk about the ideas of like toxic masculinity but this is like obviously pre that idea but it's she describes it and you know like that's toxic masculinity so there's this idea that the way that like our bi- our binary culture predicates like the male experience over the female experience and that is what you can boil a lot of our politics and wars and you know all all this shit like marriage and just how we create our society so then you would go to a society that doesn't have these binary sex um uh needs and you would and you would think it would be completely different and, and yet it's kind of not and I think that's right. a really beautiful idea that the that the each individual is no longer limited by their sex, you know, by their gender, mm-hmm. 
but that still doesn't mean that there isn't conflict and that and that binaries do not exist like the whole book is just the idea of like well is this a binary or is it not a binary and yeah we're looking at most of it through the lens of genli so whenever he points out binaries he seems to think or is told, well, is it really a binary? Look at it. You can't have one without the other. So he's, it's, it's a unity thing. I just love that. I love the whole. Right. You, It's like an examination where you think you're going to get one result and then you get something completely different. But it's still really useful knowledge, which is yeah. why I like the story. That was um, that's a really good way to sort of sum up the just the perspective of the story itself, um, because I mean that's how pe- that's how people work. Like we have our own biases, we have our own experiences, and we're going to take a set of data and come to a certain conclusion or set of conclusions based on those sort of the things that we're predisposed to think. And so to have you know have it go through Genli and then the emergent is something just out of left field it you know it really does a good job and it's subtle it's not something that she really puts in your face but as you read like you think it's going to go one place and then oh no like they're completely different they have a different kind of word for it a different kind of phrasing and just the concept that they're pulling out is different from the one that you or i would be pulling out that genley mm-hmm. would be pulling out and so just it, it it reinforces the otherness of this world and and this culture um but to uh, to your point about does the you know lack of gender binary change much or not like my I was writing out some notes on this and I was like well what in fact does it change I mean people still pledge inappropriately they still make lifetime vows they'll still like die for one another and kill for one another um, it's more just like the actual day to day interactions are not constrained by gender. And, yeah. you know, the there's no emotions or attitudes that are kind of forbidden or frowned upon for anyone. They're either frowned upon for everyone or no one. There's no, you know, boys get to do this and girls don't or vice versa. Um, and in terms of like, there's no there's no gender limit on your potential or the power or authority that you're, you know, capable of rising to. But, mm-hmm. you know, all of those all of those themes of, you know, love and emotion and sexuality will still play out in this culture. You get hints that they have and they do. It's just it's sort of equal opportunity as opposed to um, more limited to one or the other. Yeah. And I think also Genli is 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 hindered by this idea that he is a pervert because, you know, he shows mm-hmm. up and yeah, he's an alien. And then like, OK, you're an alien, but he's similar enough to them. Because they are, you know, a a branch of humanity that really all that they see him as is this this pervert who's always a kemmer. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Like he's he's not different enough for them to completely take him on his own terms. They're, They're judging him by their cultural bias. Right. And he 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 has to deal with that. And I think that a lot of people think that. And there are people in in the culture who, you know, are are either permanently in camera or chemically induced camera, and they're usually doing it for religious or 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 trying to convince people to do something like there's the scene where Estraven is they they he she, <laughs> that one guy tries to seduce him, <laughs> the pretty <Right>. one <laughs> who's like a spy for like the internal government. Uh so, you know, you can you can 
seduce people and, and sex can be used in negative ways. But it seems like when Genley's trying to interact with people, the first thing they they realize about him is like, oh, well, you're just kind of like this weird pervert who's always in Kemmer. So we can't really trust you. It's almost like you're emotional or hysterical or like there's something a little off about you that makes you someone that we need to control and not listen to. Right. You're a deviant rather than an other. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like he it's like almost like they accepted him too quickly because Mm -hmm. he doesn't he doesn't really understand until later until later on when about and even then at the end he's still following Estrovan's advice you know like he was arguing (laughs) with them all up until the end he's like no no call your fucking ship just do it call your ship force their hand let's force these people to be normal um and I think that that lends itself to this this you know bigger discussion about binary. So I wrote down a lot of like the binary. So there's Genli and Estrovan, there's mm-hmm. Carhide and Ogarain, which are the two opposing nations. And there seem to be other nations, but like they don't matter. The two big but, ones are Carhide right. and Ogarain. The others are so peripheral; they are irrelevant. Yeah, and Carhide is uh, like their their religion is really old and is a little bit more like. I don't know, like Zen-like, like they do a lot of yeah, meditation. They... Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's like a self-based religion. It feels like yeah, there's like lots it's... of stories. <clears throat> yeah, it definitely has um, kind of a either e- like a Buddhistic or um, you know some some of the other Eastern traditions that are essentially about like finding transcendence through meditation and control and um, mind expansion. Um, yeah, and there's this this phrase that they say all the time, like nothing matters, nothing matters. Like it, Nisus. they, yeah, and they, and you know, again, Lee is always like, well, don't you want the answers to the questions? And they always respond, no, you. You have to realize the answers to your the answers are always to the wrong question, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, Forty two. So that's kind of, yeah. So <laughs> then there and then there's Ogorain, which is the younger uh, the younger nation, and their religion is uh, is a branch of that. There was a prophet, and so they all they all worship this this one guy who was a. a so yeah, so I guess it's a little bit more you know, like the it's like Christian versus like. Buddha Buddhism, I guess, if you want to. Yeah, that's a it's it's a rough analogy, but it definitely works. And yeah, the uh, um, and socially, it's like a. I mean, they're both very like communal in that they do focus on the good of everyone, but mm-hmm. um, Carhide or Carehide has more, I guess fidelity to the individual or to just this is the family unit this is our hearth and we're going to take care of our hearth and not worry about everyone else unless they bring you know unless they come to us whereas in Ogarain it's very bureaucratic everyone has like a name and a serial number it's all recorded if you don't have your papers at one of the multiple stops along the road to get between any two places then you're going to jail until it can be sorted out and they can you know like index you and put you exactly like where you need to go and everyone has a job versus in care hide everyone might be taken care of in the sense of yes if you come to a stranger's hearth you will be fed but it's not the same sort of rigidity of society where like everything is is defined and uh noted Mm -hmm. yeah 
And neither one of them succeed in what they really want to do. So it's kind of a nice pairing because right. the the King of Carhide is older and a little crazy. <laughs> At least everyone calls him crazy. I don't know if he is actually crazy, but he's older and and less and, and paranoid and less willing to entertain the idea that there are aliens coming and what that does for them because and I think this is a really astute um comment on Genley's part. It's like, look, you are looking at me and I'm telling you that all these people that in space want to come and trade with you. And you basically look at me and think, well, that is a threat to my sovereignty. Like, what do I, what, if there, if there are all these other countries, if there's all these other countries on all these other planets with all these other people and all these other kings and you want me to trade with them, how, I, that diminishes my power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of how he fails on that end. And Estraven is doing a lot to try to convince them, but then Estraven makes a really bad move. Uh, a political move on his part. There's a there's a small poor section on the border that is uh, under dispute between Carhide and Ogarain. And rather than fight for it, because they go on and on about how they're not really a militaristic society and they don't really have like large wars. And I don't know if that's really as Genley attributes it to the lack of gender binary. If it's more about the weather. Right. It seems like it would be really difficult to just, like, go to war in this horrible winter planet where, you know, you're lucky if you go 12 miles in a day and, like, right. no car goes over 25 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for, for any Game of Thrones people that followed us, it would essentially be like the entire planet is up by the wall. Yeah, or beyond it, yeah. Yeah, the the walls, the southernmost, you know, or not the southernmost, but the uh, the middle of the hemisphere <laughs> and it, yeah. it only gets worse from there yeah uh so yeah there so there's that he and instead rather than um really take this into a political arena and start to fight ogarain over this over this um this space he just kind of quietly relocates the the car hiders that live there and he empties the area so that there's nothing to fight over anymore and because of that the king is like you are a traitor you've done all this crap um so i'm exiling you and when he's exiled it, you can't like, you can't talk to him you can't give him money you can't let him sleep in your house which is you know a tenet of their whole social structure and right. if you do you'll go to jail too and that's kind of what happens that's like the driving force between a lot of shit that goes down so after genley uses loses this one guy who's been on his side the whole time even though genley doesn't really understand it he, he loses all of his footing in Carhide. He's like, well, I'm not making any progress here. I'm going to go to Ogarain. And he goes there and everybody there is smiley and, and seems like they're going to be very cooperative. But they also think he's crazy and they don't believe in aliens. And they send him to jail. <laughs> right. The, uh, the, the Ogarain has a, a commensality of 33, um, basically an oligarchy. And he gets in with a faction um, who welcome him and essentially want to use him to bolster their own power but essentially they all think that he is a very clever ploy from carhide to um undermine their <laughs> public um position and it, they're all afraid to uh believe him or to publicly espouse him because they don't want to lose face when they say, oh, look at this alien. He's going to bring his ship down. Isn't it going to be wonderful? And then no ship appears because, ha ha, fooled you. I'm from across the border and we just, you know, 
you just have egg on your face and have lost all. Yeah, it's such a stupid political, political move. Like, who would do that? Like, like, ooh, we're gonna make you think that aliens exist, and then you're gonna look and feel stupid. Like, okay, then what? <laughs> right, exactly. But I, I mean, I guess it's one of those. For them, it was it was Sherlock Holmes. Uh, you know, once you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however unlikely, must be the truth. Well, mm-hmm. for them, the, the idea of him actually being an alien was impossible. So that was the only thing left that they could come up with that unlikely, ridiculous. But to them, they're like, well, the other is literally impossible. So this has to be what it is, right? Right. right and guys? this highlights right. the kind of weaknesses <laughs> of the, the Ecumen's tactic of sending out these ships and having one person go there. And then it's kind of the opposite of the Prime Directive in Star Trek, where it's like, oh, let's observe them. And if they want to be in space, they'll find us. And instead, they're like, oh, hey, people who have no space program or even flight or barely any cars, you want to be part of the the galaxy-wide government that we've got? And it's like, it's less of a government, more of like a, a club. It's like a trading club. But we don't trade goods because we're too far away. So really, we just talk to each other on the internet. <laughs> and like, right, exactly. Like, hey, hey guys, you, you lonely? You got any good philosophy we can talk about? Yeah, on, yeah, on these exactly. Long, cold winter nights. So, but we're <laughs> yeah. gonna send one guy, and you could probably murder him or just deny that he exists forever. But that's our tactic. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, that was addressed because the the rest of Genli's team um, did remain in uh, hibernation. They're circling the, the sun, and essentially, if they haven't. If the ship hasn't heard from him for, I think, like four, a four-year period or something, it'll wake up another crew member and send them down to try again. So um, it, it basically, I guess that's their strategy is just keep sending one person at a time until, like, it's done. Yeah. Time is not as – because time is relative, it doesn't matter how long it takes. Yeah. And they're not looking for any any physical goods. So there's no – urgency yeah and and that was actually something it it was not a a major thematic point but because this is the kind of book that just makes you think about a lot of side things like how sad and how dedicated do you have to be to choose a career as an envoy because he openly acknowledged his parents had been dead for 70 years and even though he was you know i think about 30 Um, So given the relativity of time travel from whatever his home planet to the central planet to then get out to um, winter and presuming there weren't any stops in between and there might have been, it was, you know, weeks of travel for him, but at a near light speed, it was decades passing and everyone he knew dying. And Mm -hmm. that's, I don't know, like, it's not something that... Um, that he really dwells on, but the times he does like talk about it or acknowledge it to me, like I just I had to stop reading and actually just sort of let that sink in. It's just it's devastating. I don't know. Yeah, you have to, you have to be a very special person or literally have nothing to lose. To yeah, we don't know a lot that. about Genli at all. We don't know. We know that he's Terran, and we, so presumably he grew up on Earth. Yeah, Earth um, that was. <laughs> yeah, Earth, Earth that was, as they say. <laughs> but we don't know a lot about him. Why did he? Why did he get into this? Is did he show any kind of proclivity for languages or 
immunity to diseases or like why? Why was Mm -hmm. he chosen for this? Was he chosen? Did he volunteer? We have no idea. And we know that he is a man on a planet doomed to celibacy, presumably. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's got to be hard. (laughs) Um, and And he really, by the end of the story, does make a fundamental mental shift to be a Gethenian. Uh, and he, like, to the point where when the humans, he does call his ship and humans do come down and they, you know, they go on with their work of, of adding winter to the acumen. And he, he's, a, he's like kind of a frightened of them when they first get here. He doesn't feel, he doesn't feel connected to them anymore. And that has to be something that happens with a lot of the envoys. Yes, although I, I will save just from personal experience, um, some of that is, is is less about assimilation and more simply um, like what you get used to seeing. Like I, uh, yeah. after my, my high school graduation present um, was a trip to Ecuador. So I spent three weeks, I think, roughly um, in Ecuador. And almost everyone in Ecuador is under about 5'5", five, five, and they all have the same coloring. And it was a shock to me to get back into um, American space and see people that were tall, taller than me, because I was like always taller than everybody. And mm-hmm. that had a variety of skin tones, both lighter and darker than the ones I'd been looking at blondes, redheads, like it was it was very weird. And so that was three weeks. And I was not alone there. I had my family with me. Um, there were other people in our group. Um, I can't imagine like, how like how deep that sense of um shock would go if you've been there for three years and like you are the only one and so everything because you don't see yourself you don't see yourself walking around and being the exception to the rule all you see is the rule of the people around you so right Yeah, no, yeah, that that does make sense. I do feel that way sometimes if I go home for for uh, like holiday or something. I it strikes me how <laughs> homogenous it looks right. to go from New York City to a small town in the south and say, oh, oh, god, everybody suddenly there's so many blondes. I I don't see this many blondes usually. <laughs> right. um, so yeah, no, I get yeah, I get that. That's that's a that's a very interesting point. Um, so before we get into some of my favorite parts of the book, um, which I said to you earlier are the, it, the story sort of broken into three parts. Uh, the first part is just kind of like the reader trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And then the second part is like, okay, here are the politics of winter. And then the third part are, is this 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 r- amazing race across the ice uh, of winter as they escape from one from Ogarain back into Carhide um, out of prison. And before we get to that, I do want to talk about some of the things that I don't like about this novel. Um I did touch on it. So the Ansible's kind of like a weird trope that is I roll my eyes at when I see it. Uh, another one is the mind speech. I I think that she introduced that specifically to do the stuff with Esther Venn when he hears Genley's voice in his head. He hears his brother Eric instead. He hears he hears Eric's voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's supposed to be something about how Genley has become his brother. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's like the literary like nod there, but I hate it. I hate the mind speech. <laughs> it's so old fashioned. It's so weird. It's like something that you always see in old like classic sci-fi from the 60s. Like there's always these humans that are like, yes, we can all, we're all telepathic. It's latent. We can all do it. Let me teach you how. <laughs> right. Like, <I> don't... <laughs> um, was there anything else that, there's anything that you didn't really appreciate? Um... No, there wasn't anything that uh, stuck out like a sore thumb to me. I mean, I, I guess part of it is that I am reading it. Um, I mean, I, ha- I had biases coming in as a reader simply because of mm-hmm. things that are said about this work. And not even just by you, but just, you know, people in general, um, other science fiction fans, people outside of science fiction who look at it. Um, and so I, I had, <clears throat> excuse me. You know, I, um, I guess I was too busy, like, fighting with those to necessarily, like, be bothered by things in the book. Also, just knowing that it is from, you know, the 19th, like, what, 1968, 69. It's mm-hmm. a product of its time. Um, yeah. Very yeah. much so. so yeah. <laughs> I mean, because I, I, I think that um, what, what you were saying earlier the attitudes about oh that's that's feminine or that's you know that sneaky behavior is feminine or that um inability to speak directly is feminine or you know something like that i almost think that you couldn't you you couldn't write that now sim- simply because it's not such a culturally accepted thing oh yeah like you know? there's a, there's a line <clears throat> in the book where he says like where estrovan's like well what do women do on your planet and he's like well right. i don't know they they raise children and He's like, well, are they stupid? And he's like, well, no. I mean, they, they don't become rocket scientists, but I don't think it's because they're stupid. And it's like you would never get away with writing that now because right, that's because, not the attitude that we have. Right, because it's it's 40 years later and that has has been turned on its head. I mean, yeah. re- regardless of where where you think we are with actual, you know, gender parity is, is not relevant because we're not there. And to sort of suggest that that's where Earth stayed, that at this point in the future – earth culture was still that constrained you know that yeah it's um, very hard for me to believe that they would think that at the you know however millennia they are a thousand years in the future to be like yeah women are still housewives and right (laughs) exactly occasionally they also become crew on these on these ships because there is a woman Right. So, I mean, even within that, there's obviously examples, but we don't know what planet she was from. So, mm -hmm. you know, he's talking about the women that he would have known on Earth, which, you know, again, for him, was a few weeks ago, like when he left Earth. Um, Whereas, or a a few years at most, but... um, Yeah. You know, but the, the girl... The one, the one female that's definitely a female um, in the Men, yeah, I think, I think yeah. her name is like human or something that sounded like human, and I just laughed at it. <laughs> yeah, like... I, I did. I didn't. I, I was reading it visually, and I did not catch the pun. Um, but yeah, I have um, to look it up now because now I'm just like, what was it? Yeah. But she, she could have been from a different planet that had evolved in a, in a different way, or that, um, you know, had advanced culturally a little further, or maybe it was they went so far and then regressed i mean some sometimes there's a a a pendulum swing um and that's an idea that eventually we're going to read a book that comes back to that um which is the the future war but um the uh yeah like one of the things that 
um, Genley was positing, because some of the, some of it's his just sort of speculation and Le Guin's way of filling in some of the gaps of how did this come to pass? How are these people here? Um, is it something like, what, 40,000 years ago, there might have been a kind of diaspora where human colonies were set up on all these different planets, maybe as an experiment, maybe not, but then they mm-hmm. all sort of like lost touch with each other and had to regain it. So maybe... Um, you know, the woman is from a planet that didn't maintain such a fierce gender, you know, assignments. Right. So. I think it also explains away the, the prime directive aspect where it's like, well, they're all, mm-hmm. we're all still, there is no prime directive because they came from us. They just right. got we're, lost. We're all, we're all humans, but, you know, maybe this experiment was one that, you know, they were intent, were they intentionally genetically modified to, um, to have aspects of both sexes and then go into like an estrus period or did that just happen biologically? Like it's, you know, kind of a coin flip. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's, um, I want to get back to some of the, the big things. So the best part of the book for me is that the last third with the race across the ice. And that is when they really start to get philosophical, which is to mm-hmm. me, like, that's like the good, like juice of the science fiction part of this story. Uh, I want to commend Le Guin for the amount of research that she did in like what it would take to, you know, to, to race across ice. Like she pays particular attention to the equipment that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and also very much so. And I think this is important to note that winter, the planet itself is as much a character as Estraven or Genli. And she, beautifully describes it um it's different uh ways of trying to kill you (laughs) um all the different kinds of yeah all the different kinds of snow and how it's not you know he there's this really great line where genley's like you know when when you told me we were gonna you know escape by skiing across the ice i had this vision of like a flat plate you know and then mm-hmm. we would just ski across this ice but it's not like that it's you know it's it there's holes in it it's rippled uh and they, at yeah. one point they actually pass by an erupting volcano uh and that is an amazing and it's actually starting to snow in new york here so today's like the first day of snow that we got and i was like I've been walking around as it's been getting colder, just thinking about this book and what it means for them to have spent like 80 days, you know, frostbitten, trying to drag everything that they own, just all their food, really, across half this planet. Um, It's just such a beautiful story, not only of like kind of like a bro-y road trip, but also of understanding. Um, And and to go back to that kind of binary, there's a lot of talk between light and dark, yin and yang. Mm Um, male and female, and how that's maybe something that is a cultural perception that may or may not actually exist. Uh, I really love that. I think it's a beautiful story. Yeah. Um, I, I think for me, the, I mean, it's, this book is, it's a well-written book, um, and it's it's definitely got the sort of literary cast uh, to it where you can tell that she's choosing her words very carefully. She's playing with the perspectives very carefully. It's it's very subtle and um, intentional, but it, it it and it's readable. It's not um, it's not difficult to read. Um, or n- the only difficulty in under in the kind of following it is just you get thrown a lot of words and concepts that you're not sure what they mean, and you kind of have to contextualize as you go. Um, but it it wasn't 
striking prose. There were a few times when she had interesting like aphorisms, um, but the only part for me where like the writing was really, um, I guess, stand out was the parts of the ice where she is actually at length describing, you know, the, the uh, just the various um, faces of winter that they're seeing and just some of the images that, that she came up with, like there's one where uh, Estevan falls off the side of a cliff and he comes, like he they managed to pull him up and he talks about like blue, um, like essentially skyscrapers, just like blue palaces that go on forever. And yeah. there's a, a point where they're caught in a, like in the eye of a blizzard that's basically there's no snow falling but it because of the overcast and the play of light on the snow it's just there's it's complete like whiteout and Mm -hmm. it's just goes on for days and just that um that image of just being opening your eyes and being blind because there's no shadow and there's nothing on the terrain there's nothing that you can actually grab onto to see even though there's yeah. light, like the light is not enough, you know, that, that kind of idea. Like some of that language was really, um, was yeah, really the line good. is, um, let me just read this line. It says, uh, fear is very useful, like darkness, like shadows. Estervent's smile was an ugly split in appealing cracked brown mask thatched with black fur and set with two flecks of black rock. It's queer that daylight's not enough. We need the shadows in order to walk. And, you know the hardship yes. of the of the of this race of the winter of what it does to their bodies even though they're adapted to it and Gen, you know genley is is just he's basically almost dying like all the time right. he doesn't get enough food because he's bigger and he's getting like terrible frostbite on his face and like i'm like he's not he doesn't lose any limbs it's amazing like gestervan really took good care of him <laughs> Yes, he did. Maybe maybe we should be talking about Estraven as a she. Such a good caretaker. Thought of everything. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's really... <laughs> it's true. He, he really planned. Uh, I think it's really also important to note that, you know, the so the Ecumen sends one, one envoy, and that person alone is the is because they're alone is able to make that jump mentally i think it's really important that genli and estrovan only really understand each other when they're alone uh Mm -hmm. and this this has happened in other books too where it's like you have these two differing people and they get shoved somewhere where they're by themselves where they have to the only thing to deal with is each other Right. And like one single goal. So they're both kind of mechanically getting up every day and going through all of their tasks in order to like make sure they have enough food and like, you know, how many miles are they going to try to go um, and the directions. But really all it's all it's about is them together. And my one of my very favorite parts, I'm going to read this. Um, this It's kind of a long paragraph, but it's it's a really nice example of the kind of writing that she does in this whole section. So this this is about uh, this is from Genley's point of view, and he is talking about what it was like to be in the tent um, with Estraven and you know as they're as they're on their travels. And he says, sometimes I am falling asleep in a dark, quiet room. I have for a moment a great and tre- oh, treasurable illusion of the past. The wall of a tent leans up over my face, not visible but audible, a slanting plane of faint sound, the susurrus of blown snow. Nothing can be seen. The light emission of the Chabe stove is cut off, and it exists only as a sphere of heat, a heart of warmth. 
the faint dampness and confining cling of my sleeping bag, the sound of the snow, barely audible, Estrevan's breathing as he sleeps, darkness, nothing else. We are inside, the two of us, in shelter, at rest, at the center of all things. Outside, as always, lies the great darkness, the cold, death's solitude. In such fortunate moments as I fall asleep, I know beyond doubt what the real center of my own life is, that time which is past and lost and yet is permanent, the enduring moment, the heart of warmth. And I love this because it goes back to this idea that there is no binary. And she talks about this idea that we exist at the moment of our life. At all times, we are halfway between something and something else. Mm-hmm. And so like, we can't exist without the light and the dark. We can't exist without both sides. We can't exist without the future and the past together. So is it a binary or is a binary a construct Right. that there well, is no binary? There's there's one moment, and it was it was one of the more like philosophically profound moments of of the book, um, and I I don't even remember what part of the journey um, that he had it in, but it was where he thinks for a moment that like suddenly I understand everything, and I like it's like this moment of transcendence for him where he stops. Um, yeah, he, when he talks about but, joy. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. just. He, and it's like instead of seeing like nothing, like instead of seeing my point of view, I simply see what is, you know, or, so, or something like that. That was kind of the the gist of it, and that was it, it was a really yeah, good I think way of summarizing the, the jump that idea. He needs to make yeah, right. Um. Well, mm-hmm. uh, this is um kind of a tangential point, but since we're talking about the uh, the light and the darkness, and and you sort of obliquely mentioned the poem, like the or the whatever you want to call it. Um, the title comes from a line of a poem, which is uh, light is the left hand of darkness. Darkness is the right hand of light. Um, so I don't know. I When I got done reading, I was like, okay, what's she trying to say by titling the book that way? I mean, did it just sound good? Maybe it did. Um, intriguing. What is that book about? But, you know, is there a thematic thing that essentially the title of the book is a euphemism for light? You know, what, what's the light that we're talking about uh-huh so i don't, I don't know that i came up with the with, with yeah an answer. I, mean, I don't I was like is it is it love is it comprehension is it enlightenment I, I, but i guess it's something she wants you to think about yeah i think it could be all those things it could be all the things that make you you know want those things uh it seems to be, you know, what it what's the word nasuth that they say? It's just is yeah. <laughs> it the question or is it an, or is it the answer to a question that we that doesn't matter? Right. <laughs> I mean like we're getting like really heavily philosophical and I'm not going to lie and say that this book is not a philosophical book. Um it's but not it, a beach read. <laughs> But, but at the same time, it it is a narrative. I mean, it's and it's not yeah. like she doesn't she doesn't weigh the text down with these questions. It's simply it is a natural emergent of this kind of book, this kind of science fiction, this kind of scenario. It's kind of the point. It's why we read these things to have somebody like ask us questions and sort of poke and say, "Well, okay, you have your little point of view. Is it right? Is it really all there is? It, you know, do you want to spend your life limited by like the blinders that were put upon you by your culture and by?" you know, the family you were brought up in? Or do you want to kind of think beyond that? That's why you read yeah. science fiction. Yeah. Well, I mean, not not you. Maybe not. I, I don't know. I don't know your life. Maybe you just like blasters. But <laughs> but for me, like, that's why I like reading this kind of book. 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It's not even just the point of science fiction to me. It's the point of literature where it's just right. like fiction, fiction in how general. Do I, <laughs> yeah. How do I how do I empathize with someone else's life? You know, I mean, like it's cheesy, but it's like a John Green thing to be like, you know, I want you I want to help you imagine others complexly and that will make you a better person. And yeah, mm-hmm. I I think that sci fi is just able to take those ideas and go to the extreme lengths with them and make us to I think that also makes it easier to understand because it's not subtle, right? There's nothing subtle right. about her saying there is no gender on this planet. Right? right? <laughs> There's not there's nothing subtle about that. And I know you put um a question in our doc that we always put together that says is this should this be considered a feminist text? And from my point of view, yes, because anybody who sits down and says, I'm going to remove gender from the system and see what happens, that's an examination of what gender does. And that, yes, that I think that's inherently a feminist idea to sit down and say, well, what happens when we remove it? What are our problems? And when you boil down humanity's problems to something that's not based on, you know, your genitals, that is to me... And, and focus on those problems instead of the problems of, well, I have a vagina and you have a penis. That's to me what feminism is. It's like, what what do we all have in common? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's my answer. You may disagree with me, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, my uh, – I probably – I understand that argument. Uh, for me personally, I wouldn't call it that because – I don't know, I I have a complicated relationship with feminism as both an idea and especially as a term, Uh, because I'm I'm very much an individualist and an equal opportunityist. And, you know, I I know to some extent that's what feminism is supposed to be. But then there's also so much kind of so much other baggage that comes with the term that I don't like to use that term for myself. I'm like, if I feel like I immediately have to follow it with an explanation of what I mean when I use the term, then it's Uh a shitty term. It's, it's vague. It has too many things that it can mean. So let me just use a different term that says immediately what I mean. So, right. um, And I also have a problem um, just in a sort of philosophical way of, of labeling texts with, you know, with with such a loaded term, because I think it also turns people off um, who might have one of the uh, more, I don't know, uh, barbed, I guess, definitions of feminism in their head. If they're like, oh, well, this is a feminist text. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean it's not, you know, accessible to everybody? Does it mean it's not important for men? Does right, it, right. Is it something that's going to be like trying to shove an agenda down your throat? You know, so... I would actually like like it not to be referred to because to me the the way you get around that shit you sneak it in like you do a snel- stealth attack and don't call it that bait and switch just, yeah well, no, not a bait and it's switch. a survival just, book it's a survival book just, that all men should you just, read you just talk about it as 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 this is an important text this these are important ideas and you don't like talk about it as they're important for women or for men like you honestly you take the the gender out of it completely and just say this is an important text it examines right. like what humanity is. And just sort of let the ideas themselves kind of do the work for you versus trying to put a label on it. Um, And I think part of that just also comes from being from the South and knowing men who will intentionally reject something, even an important work of literature, if it has the dreaded feminist label on it. So I'm like, take that shit off. 
and then they'll read it. <laughs> Maybe they'll see the light. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, we do come, this is, uh, you know, this we're going to hit this again and again when we read mm-hmm. books, but, you know, this is where we kind of philosophically differ, where I'm just like, well, you know, they may think that, but they're wrong, and that's not what feminism is. <laughs> but I should, I should be, I should be um, open that uh, Ursula Le Guin did receive a lot of criticism for this book from the feminist community in the '70s because of her default to masculine pronouns instead of coming up with an, another pronoun. Her defense of that was at first to say, "Well, I, I tried to come up with my own pronouns, um, but they, they hindered." the flow of the of the novel, which is kind of a weak excuse. Um, and then she basically uh, also then came back later and then said she was sorry, that she wished she hadn't. Um, and now she's uh, in a new world. Uh, it's not the 70s anymore and people are a little bit more open. So she has been able to say, you know, I'm proud of this book and I, I think I did something interesting with it. Um, we are going, uh, well, we'll talk about this later, but we are going to read another book uh, in which gender, uh, the, the pronouns used are all female pronouns. Uh, instead of male pronouns. Uh, so we'll see if that works or if it doesn't work. Um, but I, I also should say that she has come out and talked about how it is a feminist text. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's the thing about the great thing about books is that it really is relative to your own experience. And yes, it expands mm-hmm. your mind, but it's still you. It's still contained within yourself. And as long as it helps you think about the concepts, whatever word you want to use, to me, that's what's more important. Right. And I, I think there we can absolutely, absolutely agree. The important thing is the idea and just the, the perspective shift that happens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to read a book completely out of context to say like, okay, it's not 1969 anymore. We're not in that first wave of feminism. You know, mm-hmm. we're in like, third second wave fourth, almost fourth wave feminist but yeah so it's right like, it's different it, because it's you know it's not it's not necessarily intersectional it's not it's just a, a weird experiment where she sat down and said well i'm going to try to write one of these stories and i want i don't want any of the conflict to be based around this idea Someone that trying to have any story between else. a man and a woman is a love story right right that, to yeah. go back to the beginning mm-hmm. yeah did she, did it fail or did it not? I don't know if she, because we, I think we've concluded that despite the fact that the problems don't resolve, revolve around that, it's still c- kind of a, a story about empathy and love. It's just not about sex. Um, so yeah, I just, I guess it just depends on what every story boils down to, to, to the reader. Yeah. Um. And uh, I don't know, it just in, in terms of the the idea itself, uh, I think it's executed really well. Like, it's it's obviously one of the kind of mainstays of this whole planet, of the society. But yet it's not, it's also not what the story is about. It's, it's, it's just the background. So, um, I don't know, it, it's just, the, the whole is... It, it's it's a book of ideas but it's also a story and that that's to me yeah a mark of a really good piece of literature i mean it's definitely you know science fiction that is good enough from a literary perspective to be called this is literary it's it's literary sci-fi and um just to kind of go back to the beginning you know you you picked this as as a follow-up to the mckillop because that was essentially a literary fairy tale and i think that 
it worked really well as as a follow up simply because it does have some of the same mm-hmm. um I don't um I don't I guess like gravitas to it where it just it it is done with intention it's undertaken for very specific reasons and it there is more here than just a story I mean yes there's a story and it's an interesting story but there is a lot more as well yeah I agree I agree I like that idea. It's a set, it's a set of ideas, but it's also a story because I think that's I, I mean you people can argue with me on you know on Twitter about this, but I think like <laughs> all every good story is really just a vehicle for an idea, right? Like, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people bristle at that because they're like they don't want to be preached to and they don't want someone to evangelize some sort of idea to them. But I mean that's what everybody's doing an author has a prerogative they're trying to get you to agree with them about something right yeah well i mean i would i would say okay like i i read a lot of romance that's a genre that gets a lot of hate you think science fiction gets hate fuck y'all go go see what people say about romance like it gets sneered at it gets um shit on because well my argument would be is because it's women who write it and consume it so yeah it gets it gets relegated to like a lower level of literature it's like the thing that gets beat up the most and yeah and yet you know and that the idea is like oh well it's it's just love stories it's all the same like what is it trying to say well i mean every single romance is if nothing else saying love exists love is real like it's making an argument even if it's done even if that's the only thing that it has to say it has that much to say every story can be boiled down to a very basic idea yeah, two, two or three or however, say. whatever you're reading. I don't know what genres you're reading, but two or three people that really understand each other <laughs> and, like, <laughs> you know, connect in some way. Like, yeah, it's, it's it's essentially the same thing. So, like, is this a love story? Yes. Is it a sexy love story? No. <laughs> no, it, it, it's um, not a romance, but it is a love story. Yeah, there's nothing sexy or romantic about your skin falling off in a tent. <laughs> on a, on an iceberg <laughs> as you flee for your life from like a weird scary concentration campy kind of prison <laughs> like there's <Right>. nothing <laughs> but but um and spoilers Estrovan dies at the end so it's also a tragedy and it's also about how mm-hmm. Genli has to go on he this person that he made a connection with that that he loved he says he said he writes it down he's like I love mm-hmm. this person and the sacrifices that that Estrovan made for him, even before Estrovan perhaps loved him, um, mm-hmm. just because he knew it was the right thing to do. And then this journey they go on. And then at the very end, when Estrovan's trying to escape back over the border because the stupid king hasn't <laughs> hasn't rescinded the the um, the exile death. The, yeah, the exile. Yeah. he gets killed by border guards. And I think it's really kind of also nice that the only real violence. Um, beyond the like emotional political violence of of being labeled in exile and like all that stuff, the only are these guns and like mm-hmm. anytime that they're used, Genli just like sneers at them like they are just the most barbaric, low like piece of crap caveman thing to have these guns with projectile like you know like they just kill people like what the fuck is that? He just hates them and of course at the very end that's what that's what ends up killing um, Estraven. And it's so sad because Estrovan's life is really, I don't know if Estrovan really thought he was going to get out of it. Like, there are some moments where he's like, yes, we're going to make these plans together. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't personally don't think that Estrovan ever thought that he was going to live through the experience. 
I I don't think that he did either, which kind of makes the um, it, it makes the whole of it uh, more profound on an emotional level um, because yeah. it, it it very much is about like Estrovan, you know, he explicitly says that he made he made the choices to sort of support Genli and believe him basically because he thought it was what was best for his people and his planet. And he, you know, stuck to that. He believed that the whole way through. Um, But there's just a, an absolute sort of bittersweet poignancy to then developing a true sort of brother bond with not the envoy from the other worlds, but that specific person. And especially knowing that, yeah, the odds of us actually getting out of this are really low. And even if we do and I can complete his mission and, like, help my people, I'm not going to survive it. Yeah, it's just a, it's such a great story about love and sacrifice and duty. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful story. I'm very glad that you read it. And I'm very glad that you've had a mostly positive experience reading it. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's like I, I, I came out of it thinking like I can see why this is a classic and a masterwork and kind of one of the examples this is held up as this is the best of the best, like absolutely. And it's one that um, I, I don't know how I don't know how much I loved it or was simply, you know, kind of impressed with it, but I mm-hmm. will, I'm sure, go back and, and revisit it again. Um, just it's the sort of thing that you're as you get older and your perspective changes, you're going to find new things in it. And, you know, the sort of text where once you've read it once and kind of have the basic story, you can read for a lot more nuance and subtlety, um, you know, and pick up more of the sort of culture and the, the things that go unsaid. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm personally, I have a thing for books where the, the, the climate or the, the planet or whatever is the, is a main character. Um, so I always recommend this book, The Left Hand of Darkness. Um, there's some other books. There's some books by C.J. Cherry that I recommend. Um, J.V. Jones's um, books uh, that all take place kind of in a winter uh, environment that make Game of Thrones look like child's play. Like these are all books that I hand to people, especially as it gets colder. I'm like, you should read these. They're great. They're like good winter stories. <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> if they tear your heart out and leave it frozen in the snow. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, so we'll give this, I think we're going to start scoring rabidity levels. <laughs> That's what I'm calling it. We can come up with a different title at some point, but I'm, I'm, I'm scoring it but as how rabid are you on a there's... scale of one to 10? <laughs> um, I would, I would say, um, I don't know. I would have to be like at least a five or a six because I came away generally positive i would recommend this i don't know that i will proselytize about it but i will argue very logically about why it's important (laughs) yay so and on that note what are we going to talk about in our next episode have you thought of a book to assign me well um i have and unfortunately i think we need to find somebody else to assign it to because i know you've already read it but um you uh you had mentioned um, that there's another book that exists where all of the pronouns are female. And that book is called yep. Ancillary Justice. It's by Anne Leckie or Anne Leck. Um, and it's new. It wasn't written in the 60s. <laughs> right. This was uh, written within the last few years. Yeah, I think and it's also, Leck. It could be Leckie. Yeah. I don't, I I don't I s- know, actually. I'll look it up yeah. for when we actually do the episode. 
Yes. So um, anyway, I, I, I want to go back and revisit that book, which is clearly like shares DNA with the left hand of darkness, having read the, having read the maternal uh, <laughs> wellspring. I'm yeah. Now, like go back and re- revisit the, uh, um, the offspring. So I think it's also, I'm really excited that we're going to read Ancillary Justice. Obviously, we're going to have a guest for that episode so that we can have a new reader for that perspective. Um, but I'm, I'm excited because I also feel that Ancillary Justice owes a lot to C.J. Cherry, who is one of my very favorite authors. Oh. So it's kind of like uh, Ancillary Justice has two moms. <laughs> and uh, C.J. Cherry and Ursula Le Guin. So it's like it's going to be like a powerhouse book. And I, I'm really excited to share it with someone and we could talk about it Um yeah, I know it's been, it's kind of like a, a pop. It's not a hugely popular book, at least in terms of like, let's go back to that rabidity level thing. Like I've seen a few people talk about it on Twitter, but not not too many. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm excited to expand the number of people I can yell at about it. <laughs> well, I'm just excited to have someone to talk about it with because I read it at a point when I didn't have anyone in my life willing to read it and it was really interesting and fascinating and i and still frustrating find it it's going to be a great episode frustrating. yeah <laughs> i agree yeah. so <laughs> and there's also some so survival stuff in there yeah it's a good it's a good thematic like segue we're going to stick with the sci-fi we're going to go to, we're going to try to be i mean i'm sure we're going to lose this like nice careful planning that we're doing where we're like this book relates to this book we're just going to start recommending random books but for now we're trying to slide into the next the next one yeah we'll see how long we can keep that going yeah (laughs) well um i will talk to you next episode and happy reading happy reading bye bye